I am Plato on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Connie Coons joins me now. She's uh, just published Ruby Music, a popular history of women's music and culture. It collects just some of the remarkable work Connie has done in over 40 years, whether as a writer, a broadcaster, a music critic, and an interviewer. In 1981, she approached Vancouver Cooperative Radio to host a music show dedicated solely to playing music by women. There was some doubt as to whether there was enough music that she was only given a half hour. But even before the radio show Ruby Music, which she hosted for 15 years, going off the air in 1996, when she was on weekly Friday nights for two hours, she was chronicling the music scene here in Vancouver and beyond. The book has got profiles and interviews with a myriad of artists, including Farron, Etta James, Katie Lang, Michelle Schock, uh, Amy Grant, Ellen McElwain, as well as essays on Yoko Ono, Janis Joplin, and Joni Mitchell. Some of the interviews are previews of an artist's appearance in Vancouver. Some are reviews of the shows themselves. It's a marvelous time capsule of the music scene here and the various venues gone and still around. The book also provides insight about Coons and the role music plays in her life. It's a book everybody ought to read. Connie Coons' uh, essays have been finalists for Canada's National Magazine Award, Western Magazine Award, and Prism International's Creative Nonfiction Prize. She was a finalist for Canada's Salt Spring National Art Prize, receiving the award for Outstanding Salt Spring Artists. This uh, new book is uh, published by Caitlin Press. She joined me from Salt Spring Island this past weekend. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Island program, uh, Connie Coons. Ms. Coons, good morning. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's nice to talk to you as well. Um, the, the thing that fascinated me as I was reading the book is that, that um, uh, the term women's music, and we'll talk about that in just a second, that in the, in the context of your book, it encompasses different kinds of music, doesn't it? And, and I was going to say all kinds of music, but that's not completely accurate. Um, you do write about a number of genres, don't you? Yes, I do. And the term women's music, the way that I used it on my radio show, Ruby Music, was women's music to me meant everything and anything that a woman did. Mm. Now, women's music, the original term, came out of feminism. It came out of the women's movement. And there was a period of time, um, and this is, I believe, true in most political movements, when you reject everything that has, you know, come before. And for sure, there was a lack of appreciation by women for, the, for women who were already working in the industry. And women's music was um, highly, highly defined. Uh, it was very, very specific as to what its purpose was. And its purpose within feminism was to you know, celebrate the accomplishments of women, to call out a, to call out abuse, to, to rally people, you know, rally women to action. And those were the original roots of the original, you know, definition. Um, it was also very, um, very specific in the kind of music that could be played. And the early women's music uh, genre was a lot of folk music. Mm. Uh, and this was a big problem for, for women who were, who were coming, who, for musicians who were coming out and joining the movement who had a background in jazz or a background in rhythm and blues 
and really difficult for women who had a background in rock and roll. Mm. And you, you do talk about that in the book. When, uh, the, the, with the rise of punk music, it, it seemed like these the, the, there were groups that sort of didn't meet, did they? Not at all. And punk music, as well as rock and roll, was seen by early feminists of this era as being male-identified. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be... I don't know if that's a concept that in this time that we live in, that that people can understand how important that was for women to really define who they were. And now, in the rejection of punk, in the rejection of women being loud, women being dangerous, women playing hard rock, in the rejection of that, there was like a whole, oh my gosh, there was just like, maybe hundreds of, of of women musicians who who were not validated, who were seen as not being important. But also, historically, what happened was um, women at that time looked back at what they had been offered. And, and, and often, the sad thing is, they're looking back at music they may have loved, but all of a sudden they're seeing it in a different way. And in doing that, they're rejecting it. Now, part of what Ruby Music, again, what Ruby Music, Ruby Music, the radio show was, was I played a lot of girl group music. Uh, I needed to reintroduce, you know, the lives of these lovely, you know, dozens of young, lovely young women singers to my audience in a different context. The same was with folk music. I think a lot of the early folk singers in mainstream uh, were kind of written off as being, I think I at one point called them whiny, whiny singers pining for Jackson Brown. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It was, um, and then, but, but punk music in the 70s in Vancouver and, and, and certainly elsewhere around the Western world, uh, punk music collided head on with feminism, with feminism and with uh, women who were becoming musicians within the feminist movement. And, Ultimately, um, thankfully, it all blended together. But again, these were really important issues yeah. uh, in that time. Yeah, and you, you, you um, uh, talk about uh, the, the, the imperfections of feminism, if you will, um, uh, about how then it wasn't as all-encompassing uh, as, uh, I guess, it tries to be now, if you will, that... that, that um, there were segments of, of, of uh, the population uh, that were left out of, of whatever uh, feminism was or, or, or women's music even, right? Absolutely. And the thing about being encompassing, when when the National Organization for Women you know, in the United States was formed, when um, in Canada uh, different organizations were, you know, were coming together, this was... Again, this was a true, a true revolution. And to look back, the weird part about all of this is that we're alive. You know, we mm-hmm. went through this, and yeah. we're actually still alive. Um, in 1970, a woman couldn't get a credit card in her own name. Uh, a woman couldn't get a bank loan. Um, I remember being on a double date in a bar um, with two guys, and they didn't want to dance. And so my friend and I got up and danced together, and we were asked to leave. Huh. Now, this was in, and this was in California. Yeah. I mean, like every single piece of our life was already prescribed, and there was not a single thing 
that we could do in that time without a man's permission. And and even if you're you know busy loving men, you know you still don't want to have to have their permission, um, you know to do things that just are like normal everyday living things. So there was a lot of a lot that had to be broken down. And at that time too, uh, women were offered maybe three you know possible careers: a secretary, a nurse, and a teacher, mm. which are all great careers, believe yeah, me. Yeah. But but you couldn't be a scientist. You couldn't be a journalist. You couldn't be on the radio. You couldn't. You, there's all these things you couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So, so feminism then was very specific because you were either on the bus or you were off the bus, and every single thing you did had to reflect that you were ready to make a stand and that you were living your life as purely politically as you possibly could. Um, a lot of sacrifices were made by women trying to be um, trying to be the right feminist. Uh, there was also, in the beginning, a lot of conflict between straight women and lesbians, mm-hmm. and and that came about because <laughs> there was there were like I don't know maybe thousands of women who all of a sudden were coming out because the idea was to reject men. That was. Um, I think one of the primary aspects of second-wave feminism was to reject men and, and, and to reject them in the sense of saying, I need to learn to do this myself. I need to um, learn how to change my oil in my car. I need to be able to see if I could actually live in this world without asking a man to do something for me. And where this played out in 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 music, especially in mixed bands, is that um, women there weren't a lot of sound techs. Mm, women really didn't yeah. know much about microphones, and it could be political whether you carried your equipment up three flights of stairs or whether you asked the guy in the band to do it. So um, every single choice had a cost to it. Every single choice back then. So um, 50, 55 years later, it looks revolutionary. Did it feel like it then? Did it feel revolutionary then? Yeah. Oh, did it ever. Did it ever. It, in in certain ways, I felt completely alienated myself from, you know, from society. Uh, I think back then... The anger. There was just so much anger among women as they were sort of coming to understand fully what they were being denied, and they just didn't want to take it anymore. I really, for myself, for my friends, uh, for the women I knew, we really, really did believe that we were involved in something that was vital, so vital. Now, in 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 envelop in 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 being involved in this huge movement, and the thing about the women's movement is that you really could live in a parallel universe because women were were founding, you know, rape crisis centers, mm-hmm. art galleries. Um, in Vancouver, there was this place called Mom's Garage where you could take your car in. I mean, there was just a whole alternate uh, world being established. But 
what it didn't do is it didn't reach in and take the hearts of women who were at home, married with their kids, who loved being housewives, who loved raising their children, who loved, you know, who loved their world, yet had some dissatisfaction and needed some support. And I think that the women's movement in the early days, maybe at least in the women's movement that I knew, failed those women. And in saying that, I believe the women's movement failed, you know, like my own mother. Hmm. By the way, you, you dedicate uh, the book to um, uh, uh, to a friend of yours and uh, as well as your mother. And yeah. um, there's a story in the book that you, you tell a couple times about how um, she used to, to uh, rescue these 45s. And, and give them to you. Yes, and see, and what this brings up too, and I'll just do this briefly, is that um, I think the origins of the women's movement was a very um, uh, upper middle class movement. Mm-hmm. And so one of the battles throughout the women's movement was the battle over class. Now, of course, there was a battle over race, but um, I can speak more truly about the battle over class mm-hmm. because because that's, I was from a, essentially a, like a, a poor working class family. And my mother was a cleaning lady. And I think that I really always want to make that point and was able to make that point several times uh, in the things that she was doing for me. And she would go at nighttime at night and clean her local radio station. Mm-hmm. And in the, and really it was a dark, damp basement. Um, there were hardly any lights, maybe um, you know, the, you know how it is, like one yeah. light bulb in the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. But but she was saving. She had been told to throw out all these demo 45s, and there were hundreds. And she saved them for me. And um, the night she took me down there, the boxes that they were in were damp and practically falling apart. And it was it was stunning what was down there because I recognized the artists. Yeah. The majority were the majority were all women, but the labels were historic. You know, just like a Sun lot of Records black, and Oh, yeah. I know, I know a lot of black labels, a lot of um, country labels, but um, incredible, incredible songs on these demo forty fives. The band Fanny. Um, there was. Um, um, Marlena Shaw singing California Soul. There was Irma Franklin singing... Um, Peace of My Heart. Thank you. Yes, Peace of My Heart. And so many others. And there were, there were women that I'd never even heard of. And so I carried all these back in my suitcases. I just filled my suitcases full of 45s. She kept doing this for me over the years. And then I did entire radio shows based on just this music. Yeah. What kind of music did she like listening to? I was wondering that as as I was reading that story in the book. What did my mom like? Yeah. Well, this you know when I my mom gave me um, my first little forty five record player, and she gave me her collection of forty fives, and I remember maybe like two of the records that she gave me, and one was um, a, a, like a blues record by Maxine Brown, and the other one was the the theme from the movie Susie Wong. Um, I mean, mean, it was really random. But what I do know is my mother um, 
My mother loved Elvis Presley. Mm. She was 18 when she had me. Yeah. You know, so she um, she was, you know, very much a teenager in that way. And later in life, though, she tended to um, order CDs from the television that were, you know, somebody playing the great hits on piano. That oh, kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah. Um, the frustrating thing, as one reads your book, is is um, seeing how the contributions of, of not just female musicians but the people around them, um, how they're often overlooked and dismissed. And that's the case even now. And, and that's why, as I was reading about the past in your book, I couldn't help but think that this book is uh, somehow urgent today. Thank you for saying that. Um, there seems to be right now a bit of a wave there are other women who have started um, publishing their collections, and there are other histories um, that are being that are being put out there. It's it's so frustrating. I think June Millington, and I quote this in the book, but mm-hmm. June Millington, who was in the band Fanny, um, said that what was and she told me this in 1988 that what was so frustrating for her was that she's meeting all these young women who are coming into music who have no idea of the rich musical history before them, or that even um, they, there are musicians that they should be paying attention to now who are still alive. Mm. It's, 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 it's almost like, you know, you walk through water and it closes behind you. Yeah. So, and, and I just think that's, that's just so frightening. And it becomes more frightening for me as I get older. And, and like, okay, I'll confess, I'm like seven, I'm 72 years old, and uh, and I've been, you know, I've been doing this since maybe I was like 24, 25, and it's just it it, it first it was just kind of baffling, like oh I, I get it, you don't you don't know this history, that's okay, it hasn't been taught, so now let's teach it, but it, it it's not sustaining. It, it's not there's something about it that's not permanent. Um, and again, the analogy of walking through water and then having the water just close behind you—it's so urgent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you come up with the name Ruby Music? It was kind of—it was kind of a typo. Um, seriously, this is going to just sound really lame, but. Um, I think Rita Mae Brown had published this book, Ruby Fruit Jungle, which was really, you know, popular. And but that had actually nothing to do with my title, although a lot of people made that association. Uh-huh. But uh, I had oh, that's just embarrassing. I had a I had a a brand of stationery that was called Ruby Street, and I just liked the way that sounded. And I also liked how Ruby Ruby was very feminine. Um, I, I, I thought a ruby was a was a sort of like a a woman's stone in a certain way, and so I just decided to call it Ruby Music, and I made a typo on my application, and it became one word, and that's that's how it came to be. Wow, that, <laughs> it, it, and it me you, you you just said it it it's uh, it, it it's a stone, but you know I I thought of it as the color, I thought of it as a name even. Um, but but it's it, it's it's such a uh, it's it's not a, just a great title for a book. It, it, it's a great title for all of this, if you will. The show, you know. 
thank you. It grew into it. Yeah. You know, it 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 just it became its own. It became what it was supposed to become. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it became it means what it's supposed to mean, uh, and yet, and yet, um, it was kind of abstract and random in a way. But thank you. There's a a, a beautiful uh, part story in the book where where you talk about your relationship with radio, uh, growing oh. growing up with it as a kid, listening to to all this this marvelous music that that you you've you've um, you know that that, that you liked. Um, and then uh, you had a friend, I guess, who who ended up working at the radio station. And um, yes. what was it like going down there for the first time? And, and I know you you wanted to be a writer. I think you, you'd already um, yes. decided that. But um, the, what did what did radio feel like at that moment when you go down there and see all the equipment and and all the stuff there? Well, there's this, the words, you know, these are going to be kind of, again, sort of lame. It, it was electric. It was magic. Um, it was, his name was Rick Davenport, and he was my neighbor. And it was between, it was the summer, um, I think, be, between being in grade 8 and grade 9 that he became the nighttime DJ at the local station. So when I went in there, what I remember to this day is these is the little colored lights, the little colored lights on the turntable, um, the tiny little lamp that you turn on that shines down on the on the board. It was so exciting. It was like being in a spaceship, I imagine. You know, it was it it just and there was a smell, and it was the smell of Ampex tape. Um, which is a smell that I still love to this day. You know, you un- but they don't even think they make Ampex tape. But I like, to- <laughs> but I like to smell my own yeah. that my own tape that I still have. <laughs> but um, it was it was it was where it all happened because I had been listening to the radio all my life, and for so many teenagers too, radio saved us. There's that famous song last night, a DJ saved my life. Well, mm. that's true, um, and also radio. Um, introduced a generation of us to to other cities, to other sounds. Uh, I had the best KOMA, Oklahoma City, was like 100,000 watts. You know, it was like a primo station. Anything that was worth playing was on that station. But it was also an era of a true DJ mm. where you had an individual who was passionate who could talk to you, who could play the music, who could turn you on, and um, and who had real independence. So I was already hooked. I mean, I remember the, the night I heard the Beatles for the first time on my transistor, and it was um, my Bonnie. It was my Bonnie lies over the ocean. Um, the first time I heard the song yesterday, I was in a car with teenagers going out to the county fair, and they announced it on the radio, and we turned it up. You know, that kind of thing. That, really, it's a turn-on, and it goes straight into your soul. So when I walked into that radio station that night, I knew that whatever this was, I had to be a part of it somehow in my life. And how did you end up in Vancouver? Um, just no self no self discipline. I was just, <laughs> you know, I was just uh, hanging out. <laughs> no, um, 
I had I'd taken a leave of absence from my job um, in California, and I was going to travel across Canada because Canada just seemed like a nice, safe country to travel across, and and meet up with some friends who lived in New York, and then go back to California, and it it didn't happen that way. I I got up here and essentially ran out of money, and of course in those days, you know, you could come across the border without a passport. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Things, you know, things were just easier. And so I uh, realized that there was some, you know, pretty great opportunity here, and I got my landed status, and and I'm a citizen, and I've been here most of my life now. What is it like for you, Connie, to to um, read some of these these profiles that you did, uh, whether it was in the the Georgia Strait or, or uh, even in Geist, um, a lot of the reviews of, of concerts, even. Um, when, when you look back at it, do, do, do you remember um, the, the night itself or, or, or the, the afternoon or morning when you were talking to these people over the phone? Most of them I do. And um, I'm, I'm sort of surprised at the, the seriousness of, of, these, of these interviews. I look back at the one about that I did with Amy Grant, mm. and she's 27 years old. She's only 27, and the things that we were talking about—talking about slavery, talking about the South, talking about um, how as she begins to travel in the world—that she under, that she understands that the world may not have a a great opinion of the United States. You know, I mean, these are these are kind of very serious issues that I, I talk about with her and, and she was, and she's lovely yeah. and she was, and she was, you know, kind of really open. And, and then I think about, you know, with, with Etta James, yeah. um, how, and, and see my, and my, my sort of policy or my, the way that I worked is I really, really did let the person speak. Mm that I was not, it was not for me, it was not my personality, it was not me to insert myself into this in, interview. The, my, my idea was to just really respect what they had to say in any way they had to say it for as long as it took. And so when I read some of these interviews again, and now that I have the book in my hands, you know, like I am, I'm just, I'm just reading and reading. And I'm just struck by um, by the power of so many of these women's words, and and I'm so thankful in that regard that these words now exist again for anyone to read who wants to. No, the, and I'm yeah. Pardon me. I'm just grateful. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about the Edda James interview because that's a, a powerful um, uh, piece to read. Um, Thank you. Where where was that? Where where did you conduct that interview? Uh, we did it in two places. I did it over the telephone, and then I and then I did it um, uh, backstage at the town pump. When you um, have somebody on the phone, and 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 I'm asking this because I, I have people on the phone frequently. Um, how do you um, put 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 the, the the subject at ease? Say if you're conducting an interview with them over the phone, it, it, it's a, it's a lot different than than in person, I would assume. Um, but but at the same time, 
um, I found over the years that I, I, I get a lot out sometimes out of a person. Well, I love talking on the phone, and and, yeah. and I and I loved talking on the phone um, during my phone interviews, and and I had a back in the day I had a um, uh, I had a recorder that you know that I could that I could plug in mm-hmm. and I and I taped it all on cassette and then I would transcribe it on you know off the cassette but um I think I think phone interviews can be really revealing because in a way there's there's no there's no limit to to where you can go with it and to what you can say and and also they're more in a certain way they're more they're more private uh, and like right now, I'm just around my 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 office amongst all my records and my boxes of stuff, you know, talking to you, and that's really comfortable and that's really nice, and it's it's really informal and yet it's but I think it, it you know it, it's 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 deep, and with Etta, with Etta, you know the phone the phone part, you know the phone part was great, mm. but um, obviously. But um, interviewing, you know, continuing and interviewing her backstage was in in a pretty relaxed atmosphere at that time too. Was even more revealing, and she had a lot on her mind. Yeah, she did yeah. during that interview. A lot on her mind, and uh, and I think in a certain way, you know, she was pretty bummed. <laughs> she was yeah. pretty bummed out, and and a, and a, just a tad sad because you know she'd been thinking about her legacy mm. and 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 were her children ever going to be proud of her and then of course there's the things that she said about Janice Joplin I also I believe at the time and I hesitate to say this but I'm going to say it anyway but I believe at the time that she was having um difficulties with the success of her rehab mm. but at the same time man she ever give a performance she was alive. Mm. Um, I think for anybody who was in the town pump that night, it could, it uh, would be one of those concerts that just kind of you know stays with you for the rest of your days. And and that's the uh, the gift of this book is that you know um, in, in the reviews of concerts especially, um, you're giving us uh, you know a, a critical response to a performance uh, to, to music, but you're also capturing what it's like in that room that night. And, and, and I'm wondering, when you're writing a review, um, what were you trying to convey to the reader? Or what did you want to, to the reader to come away with, you know, from your own ex- experience that night? Well, that, that sometimes, uh, <laughs> that sometimes the things go wrong in a review that it's not necessarily the performer's fault. Mm. <laughs> that's what, you know, that's one thing. But um, atmosphere is everything. And I think as a writer, uh, you know, it's one thing to say this didn't work or that didn't work or this is a really great song. But to me, atmosphere is where it's at, uh, what's created in the room, what's created among the people that you're with. Um, that and, and that's what I... I always have always tried to do that in my writing. I also try to use as few words as possible, <laughs> um, which is just an aside mm-hmm. uh, in, in my writing. 
uh, I like things to be really clear. And at the same time, I'm probably known for being a bit emotional in my writing, but but I can't help it. Um, Rita McNeil is someone you, you've talked to um, a number of times, and, and she comes up in, in the book a, a few times. Yes. Um, what I found fascinating was that you, that, uh, you talked to her um, you know, after she broke, say, and, and, and became a success, but you also talked to her, um, was it at Expo or when, when she was performing, say, you just, just people were walking by her as she was performing? What happened is that um, Expo 86 back in 85 mm-hmm. um, had sort of like a, a, I guess kind of like a dry run. It was open for different, you know, different performances. And there was a little tiny... Um, oh God! What do you call those things? There's bandstands. Mm. There was like a little tiny bandstand. They're just sitting out there, pretty close to you know Science World as we know it now. Yeah, yeah. And and she was singing there, just singing. And she had different performances at different times. And there was an accompanist, and she was just singing to no one. Now, in no time at all, as you know. She was going to be incredibly beloved across this country. Um, her work with the miners, that song with the miners, yeah. good Lord, good Lord. But but there she was, really singing to an empty plaza, and she was doing her job. She was doing it. And so one of the times that we met was right after that, and we just sat down. She was such a, a quiet, um, thoughtful, dignified woman. Uh, she spoke very slowly. Her words were always chosen, and uh, and maybe uh, in that day that we were sitting outside, maybe just a tad unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I just remember so clearly how she spoke, and how every word was paced, and and I had a lot of feeling for her that you know that day just knowing that she's just singing to you know yeah. she's singing to the sky yeah yeah um what, what do you like listening to now ah well <laughs> glad you asked i mean this is sound crazy but the last concert i went to was lark and poe and they're a sister blues guitar um duo i think out of north carolina um but and so I have their record that I'm I'm listening to all the time in the car. Uh-huh. And then I and then I also um, I went and what did I do? I ordered uh, Chrissy Hind. It's an older CD, Chrissy Hind, where she's singing Bob Dylan songs. And I don't know what's with me, but I got um, the Essential Hall and Oats. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm listening to Sarah Sarah smile over and over and over. Yeah. But, yeah. It, 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 so, so um, other than Hall and Oates, if, if if Ruby music were on today, w- w- would those be the things that we would hear, say, on, on a Friday night? Oh gosh, I would love that. I think if Ruby music were on today, I would still focus on the rich history of women musicians, uh, even going back into classical times. I would still be playing a lot of the music I played then. Uh, as well as, you know, and reintroducing it with new information. But there are so many 
um, incredible singer-songwriters and musicians today, I think I'd have no problem, you know, showcasing, you know, newer artists. And and what I'm loving right now, too, is sort of like this cross-pollination. I've started listening to more country music. Mm. And and there's, uh, I mean, you know, there's Carrie Underwood, and Carrie Underwood, you know, one... Um, American, American Idol, yeah. American Idol that year, yeah. and and what she's done with her career, she's, they were, I think it was the Country Music Awards a couple of years ago. She brought out Joan Jett, and mm. they did, you know, a whole thing where she's basically celebrating Joan Jett. Carrie Underwood did a song with Axl Rose of you know Guns and Roses, one of the most you know one of the more beautiful ballads. So I think that that there's a lot of movement. Um, with with musicians collaborating and a lot of uh, women leading the way doing that, so there's just so much. Yeah. I'd love to be back back she, on the air again. Yeah, she also did the Sound of Music on television once. <laughs> did I? <laughs> no, uh, no. Uh, um, uh, uh, Carrie Underwood did. She played. <gasps> she. How did I miss that? How did I miss that? She she played. Uh, it, was, it was one of those. Remember when they used to do musicals live on TV? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so she she did the Sound of Music one night, and um, which they replayed a few times, and and uh, you know I never w- watched American Idol, uh, even now, um, and and that was my first say introduction to her, and uh, I thought she was pretty good, you know. Oh, how funny! Yeah, I um, well, I'm sorry I missed that. Maybe I was in a car driving somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone I want to ask you about, and and I've kept you longer than I said it would, but if you, if you'd indulge me, um. The, the kind of music I like, I, I I'll have Mabel Mercer on once every couple of days, and I know that she was good friends with and and um, influenced by Bricktop, oh. who you uh, write about in the book, and and um, I guess the piece that that about her in the book is um, just after her death uh, in 1984, and before her death, days before her death, you, you produced uh, an interview. Um, on the CBC with her. What was that process like in, in getting her to, to talk, say? Bricktop was really one of the highlights of my life. And I was a I was a writer at CBC on a radio show called Variety Tonight with Vicki Gabriel. Mm. And it was a nightly show that was, I think, like two hours long. So there would sometimes be like a 45-minute radio interview. It was a it was a stellar show, I have to say, and I felt very fortunate, you know, that I could be working there for the short time that I did. But one of my jobs was to search to find items that Vicky might be interested in, people she might be interested in interviewing. And I came across an autobiography uh, of Bricktop written by James Haskins. And James Haskins, who has also passed away, um, wrote a lot of books on Black American history. And I contacted him by telephone, because that's what you did. Yeah. And um, I believe we did an interview with James Haskins, and then he also um, set it up that we could interview Bricktop. At that time, she was quite old. She was living in New York City, and she was spending most of her time in bed. So, again, in those days of radio, we sent a stringer to her apartment with a reel-to-reel tape recorder. So Vicky is in the studio in uh-huh. Vancouver, 
and Bricktop is, is in her bed, and this whole thing is taking place on these two reel-to-reel tapes. And to hear her voice, to hear her stories, and then what happened at the close of the interview is that the stringer then couriers that reel-to-reel tape to me, and then I edit the two of them together. So that was, that was the process. But I was busy editing the tape when we got the call that she had died. Wow. And that that was the last interview she ever gave. So it became a really powerful tribute um, that night on CBC when we played the music of, of people that she had encouraged and that she had discovered herself. And the bricktop, man, I just, I just feel so fortunate that I was able to be a part of that. Well, that I thought it up. <laughs> I yeah. made it happen. But um, I just, that's one of the things I'm, you know, quite, you know, quite proud of to have been a part of. And it's an extraordinary list of people. I mean, I mentioned Mabel Mercer, but there's Josephine Baker. Um, there was a, a, a young guy that she encouraged to write, you know, Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes, you I know. know. And I mean, those are three names, and there are probably a dozen more names that I'm forgetting at this point. Um, and um, just a great performer as well, wasn't she? Well, she was, and and that's what she had started doing. Was she had started singing first, mm-hmm. and and then um, you know a lot of during that early era, a lot of American blacks went to Paris. They went to Europe, mm-hmm. and and stayed there. And that's where, you know, her legendary clubs, yeah. you know, began. And then later she had, uh, I, I'm trying to think, there were so many people in Paris that she discovered that she encouraged. But to think that Langston Hughes was like a busboy, <laughs> you know, when she found him. And then Josephine Baker had all, you know, had so many troubles with men. Yeah. And so she was there, you know, helping on helping on that level, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. But um, it was it was incredible, actually. And and I think I think things like I mean, like Bricktop have have we lost that too? Have we lost that story? Uh, well, not now because yeah. it's in the book. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, this is such a, a great book. I, I so enjoyed reading it, and, and you have to be very proud, and, and I hope a lot of people pick it up. I, I so appreciate your time today, Connie. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, Planta, I've loved this so much. I've, I have. I've just loved this so much, and thank you for, you know, thank you for asking me. The book is called Ruby Music, A Popular History of Women's Music and Culture. It's uh, published by Caitlin Press, its author, Connie Coons joined me on the line from Salt Spring Island in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.